Good morning, everyone. the cross I was crucified with my Lord I have died I've been justified and I've been sanctified I've been glorified been glorified been glorified oh yes I am I am a citizen yes I am I am a citizen citizen of heaven I'm not of this world oh from above I wait I wait for the God of love oh yes I am I am a citizen yes I am I am a citizen citizen of heaven out of this world to live for self is to live a lie there is no fruit unless I die I've been raised with Christ and I share his life glorified, be glorified, be glorified, oh, yes I am, I am a citizen, yes I am, I am a citizen, citizen of heaven, I'm not of this world. from above I wait I wait for the God of love oh yes I am I am a citizen yes I am I am a citizen citizen of heaven I'm not of this world I'm a citizen of heaven I'm not of this world
All right, good morning, and uh, can you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? I'll be right back with you. I'm just going to hang up the guitar. I'll be right back. Alrighty, and uh, good morning again, and uh, let's, uh, if you haven't turned there already, go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As you can see on the board, for those of you at the video, uh, we're moving on to verse 19, Ephesians two nineteen Today, this will be the first of two hours in this verse, and today in the A part, uh, the first, uh, first uh, metaphor, we're seeing that Gentile Christians are no longer foreigners and foreign citizens, and that's in relation to uh, God's kingdom, members of God's kingdom in, in Israel and uh, regenerate Israel. And um, so this will constitute our 123rd hour in Ephesians. And as you can see, we're rapidly uh, coming to the end of this book. Uh, end of this book. We have a long way to go in this book. End of the chapter. So it's been, uh, uh, for me, it's one of, uh, a, every book is fun, but Ephesians is really, really uh, a lot of stuff in there. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny how you fall in love with a book. You know, it's like, you know, you do a book and then you're like, oh, this was such a great book. And then you have to say goodbye to it. And you move on to another book. But uh, each book has, uh, as you learn so many things and it helps me with my walk with God. I hope uh, when I'm uh, communicating the passages uh, and bringing out the implications and the application and significance for us here in the church age, I hope it's uh, been a blessing to you as well. And uh, so, uh, uh, so therefore, uh, let's uh, let's take uh, let's let's move right into it. Let's take a moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves, to determine if we're in fellowship with God. Because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to First John one nine, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians 3.16, to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given to us, another gift, uh, the gift of another day. We're very appreciative of that, Lord, and uh, just thank you, Father, for all the logistical grace blessings that you've given to us, the food, shelter, clothing, these bodies that we have, the senses that we have, our volition, souls. Uh, we just thank you, Father, for the freedoms that you've given us in this country, and uh, we lift up our leaders, the military and political leaders of our country. Uh, that you give them the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this country, raise up people to influence uh, these individuals and our civil authorities, federal, state, and local governments, uh, godly people, give them godly advice and uh, influence the policy making in our nation. 
And uh, I also pray you would have your hand upon the upcoming election. I know you are, but I just pray, Father, your will be done concerning that. And uh, I pray that you would impress with your people the importance, the church, to, uh, to pray for their leaders, to obey their leaders, uh, unless there's biblical justification not to, as you've taught us, but also um, that you would uh, impress upon your children, the church, to uh, pray for their leaders, as it's, your word says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 8, for one, so we might live a tranquil, quiet, quiet life in this country, and uh, also uh, because you desire all people to be saved. So pray for that. And uh, Father, today, I just thank you for this study in Ephesians, and I pray you would bless us in our study of Ephesians 2.19 today. I pray that you would help me as the communicator to uh, fulfill the purpose for which you gave me this gift. Help me to communicate by the Spirit your full counsel today with regards to this passage. And uh, so that your people can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment. And your word says, uh, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth. I also pray, of course, for your children, help them as well by the Spirit to uh, be sensitive to what the Spirit's saying and, and to help them to learn, understand, and to carefully consider the passages and principles we're noting today in order to make personal application in their very own lives. I pray that each person will be spoken to individually and all of us as a corporate unit in the body of Christ would as well. I pray there be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and upload these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. I thank you for them. Protect them from the enemy. Thank you for the streaming video by YouTube and the service that they provide. And I pray that would function properly. And so, Father, we just pray for this uh, service that it would be um, a great blessing to all of us and that you'd work mightily through your people in this lesson. And, uh, and ultimately, all of us would continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, and you would be glorified, you and your Son. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. We're continuing our study again of Ephesians chapter 2, and particularly Ephesians 2.19. This will be the first of two hours in this verse before we move on to verse 20. And as you know, we only have a few more verses to go in the chapter. Uh, right now, we're in the section of Ephesians, verses 11 through 22. Uh, which is uh, actually an inference from the first 10 verses of the chapter where the Gentile Christians who were the recipients of this letter in the Roman province of Asia, uh, they were saved by grace through faith. They were, uh, despite the fact that they were enslaved to sin and Satan's cosmic system, they were made alive together with Christ by, and, they were, and specifically they were identified with Christ in his resurrection and session at the right hand of the Father. And this was not of their own doing. This was not a, according to works, but based upon the merits of the object of their faith, Jesus Christ, this took place. And then, so verses 11 through 22 talks, uh, is addressed to the Gentile Christian community who are the recipients of this letter. Paul says that quite clearly that they're the recipients of this letter. And as we pointed out in our introductions many times since, uh, this uh, particular book is not just written to the Ephesian Christian community, the Gentile Christian community in Ephesus, but actually the entire Roman province of Asia, the various cities and, the Ro and towns in the Roman province of Asia. And uh, we know that because it's, it's a circular letter. We know it's a circular letter uh, for a couple of reasons. One, there's no personal greetings that Paul uh, presents to us in this letter when you would expect he would since he was there for three years. Acts 18, 19, and 20 tell us that. But there are other places and other writings of Paul that, uh, you know, he doesn't give personal greetings to people. And uh, and they're not a circular letter. So uh, the coup de grace, though, the, the real the real basis for understanding it as a circular letter is the is the manuscript tradition. The old, earliest and oldest manuscripts do not have the word Ephesus in Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, in fact, this contents of this letter was seen by a man named Marsh and a heretic uh, centuries ago. 
uh, during the times of the early church fathers, and he said the contents of what he was reading, uh, we call Ephesians today, was actually addressed to the Laodiceans. And we can compare that uh, with uh, uh, Colossians. At the end of Colossians, Paul says to the Colossian Christian community, I want you to exchange letters with the, the Laodiceans in the letter I sent them. Okay, so who, what's this Laodicean letter? Well, most scholars and I'm and pastors I know, uh, they think that's this is the Ephesian letter. So I, it's a circular letter like First John was, written to actually First John and Ephesians are actually written to the same group of people, but decades separate between the two. Paul wrote this between sixty and sixty-two A.D. during his first Roman imprisonment, and John wrote First John, another circular letter like Ephesians, at the end of the first century. He took over for Paul toward the end of his life in the last decade of his life, and that's when he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Gospel of John. So uh, we see that uh, Paul is the author of this letter, the early church, and Paul did not believe in synonymity, contrary to modern scholarship in Christian circles today, fascinatingly. The uh, reason why I say that is because the, the early church never accepted pseudonymous letters. In other words, someone's posing as Paul, and he's not really Paul, but he's trying to increase the fame of Paul because he loved Paul and revered Paul. And that's what happened with a man named uh, uh, a pastor in the days of Irenaeus, an early church father, in his work on baptism. Someone did just that, and they excommunicated him. So they didn't have they didn't tolerate that stuff. And also, Paul didn't either. Read Second Thessalonians, a book we did in great detail. I remember the there were one of the problems that the Thessalonians were facing, and that Paul was addressing in that letter, is that somebody was teaching false doctrine that the day of the Lord, the eschatological day of the Lord, the tribulation period. 70th week of Daniel had begun. And Paul says, even if it, had, it hadn't begun, and he says, and even if somebody allegedly writing a letter from us, okay, allegedly was from us, you're to reject that. Okay, so, and then he goes to the end of the letter, he says, this is my authenticating mark. And why do you think he, he, he told them that? Is because he, want the, he wanted them to know, he wanted them to know this was my, my I actually, is the, I'm the, actually the author of this and here's my authenticating mark to prove that. Now, did he do this in every one of his letters? Possibly he doesn't mention it in every one of his letters. But when you think about the Thessalonian situation, where those people probably saved maybe a year and he was separated from them, and he's mentioning what he's mentioning in chapter 2, that somebody allegedly wrote a, wrote a letter, possibly teaching that the day of the Lord had already begun, alleging, and, uh, alleging that they were, uh, they were Paul, posing as Paul. And, uh, and Paul didn't accept that. Okay? He, doesn't want, he didn't want that. So that's why his authenticating mark was just is a is a it tells us that he didn't accept or want any pseudonymous letters. People saying that they were him. It just just make any sense. The early church never. I'll tell you what, never in any in, in throughout the centuries. Okay, you got for two thousand years. It wasn't until modern times, the twentieth and the twenty first century, and that we find that the uh, the Christian community and the scholars in particular believe that. Uh, Ephesians was written by somebody other than Paul, and same with First, Second, First and Second uh, Timothy and, and and Titus. The church never, for centuries, ever believed that. Okay, so, so this is one of the instances where you know we had a lot of smart guys, and that's great. We need that, you know, the, in the Christian community, academics. Absolutely, you can't, you know, but not everybody's an academic. Okay, some people think they are. So it's the thing is the problem is is that. Uh, we have to pay attention to our heritage. You know, I'm not saying because the early church father in the church for centuries, you know, believed a certain thing that 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 cinches it. No, it's the scriptures that cinch it. But it's a big. I would be. I would give pause if I was people 
who are saying that Paul didn't write, write, really write Ephesians and 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, I would pause and uh, hold back a little bit. I would think very, I would, I would pray on it very deeply <laughs> and for a long time before I start saying that Paul's not the author of these books. And so we have the, pur the purpose of this letter is uh, to keep the, the, uh, the, maintain the unity in the Christian community between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. And this section in Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, indicates this is something that Paul was concerned about. And we know from chapter 4 as well. So he wanted the unity that was already established through the baptism of the Spirit of justification between Jewish and Gentile believers to continue. And you do that through the practice of the command to love one another and all that that involves, as we'll get into the last three chapters of Ephesians in the future. And then in a positional sense, we'll, we'll be perfected and unified in a perfective sense in, in, in resurrection bodies. So in Ephesians 2, 11-22, fascinating passage because Paul says that Jewish, and Gen, Jewish believers and Gentile believers are united uh, through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of justification, and so they're, they're on equal footing with each other. They composed the new humanity. Now, when we get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, which I'm in the process of wrapping up that section of Ephesians in my studies, it's fascinating. Paul says that the mystery doctrine for the church age, one of the mystery doctrines of the church age, not known to Old Testament saints, was that Jewish, uh, Gentile uh, church age believers are co-heirs, co-members of the body of Christ, and co-partakers of the Messianic promise with Jewish believers because of their faith in Jesus Christ, the justification and union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit. So that was not known to Old Testament saints, and this was the reason, as we see, we'll get to chapter 3, this is the reason why Paul was imprisoned and persecuted. The, the Satan and the kingdom of darkness don't want to hear that because that means that the, the church is the new humanity with Jesus Christ as its head, and they're going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels at the second advent. Okay? So Paul, they wanted to stop Paul from uh, preaching the gospel, and I'm talking about the gospel in relation to the spiritual life, uh, that you're, the good news that you're, 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 no, you're not uh, slaves to sin and Satan as cosmic system, and you can experience that deliverance through appropriating by faith your union identification with Christ. And so we see that uh, Paul uh, was persecuted. In fact, he was in prison. Uh, Satan and his kingdom got unregenerate people like unregenerate Jews to accuse Paul of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish section of the church, as we read in the book of Acts, and he was arrested and unjustly. He didn't do that. And but the Romans were looking for the payoff and uh, Paul to slip them some money, and they were and they knew he was innocent as well. They had no cause for to, to, to imprison him. And he was a Roman citizen. That's why he appealed to Caesar. And uh, he knew what he was doing there. So uh, so Paul uh, was uh, brought, was his ministry was bringing blessing to the, the Gentile Christian community because it was informing them that they were on equal footing with Jewish Christians. And this was, we knew in the Old Testament, and Paul makes this clear and, and, and he quotes several passages in Isaiah and Romans 15, it's taught all throughout the Old Testament that Gentiles are going to believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. They didn't, in the Old Testament, they didn't know his name was going to be Jesus. So uh, we see that, uh, so that we didn't know was that they would be Jewish and Gentile believers, would be co-heirs, co-members co of the body of Christ, and co-partakers of the Messianic promise because they both, because of faith in Jesus at justification and union identification with him in the through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. So this is important for us. Remember, we keep mentioning, I keep mentioning this to you. You know, right now, Satan is the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that. 1 John 5.19, as we pointed out, is under his, the whole world's under his power. And uh, even all the foreign governments, only one elect angels over a nation in this in this world, and that's uh, Michael over Israel. 
So we have uh, all the kings of the earth are under Satan's power. He, in fact, he offered to Jesus in his temptation in Luke 4, all the kingdoms of the world, but Jesus emphatically, of course, with the word of God, rebuked him. But that wouldn't be a legitimate t temptation if he didn't, in fact, have that kind of authority. And he does. He deceives the entire world. Revelation 12 talks about that. So how did he get to that position? Because he usurped the authority of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when he got them to fall. So remember, God initially created the human race, Adam and Eve, to be the rulers over the works of his hands. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tell, tell, tell us that. Okay, husband and wife, right? Well, guess what? The first step in restoring mankind as the rulers of this earth, and Satan doesn't want you to know that, he doesn't want me teaching this, is and anybody, is that was Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session the right hand of the Father. That destroyed the works of the devil and placed a man, a God-man, on the throne at the right hand of the Father. He has the title deed to planet earth. That's what took place at uh, his session. And remember the Daniel 7, 13, 14 passage. The Son of Man went up to the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom. Well, guess what? He's, he got the kingdom and the Father's making his enemies a footstool for his feet at this present time. And we see that when you get to Revelation 5 and 6 with the seven sealed trumpet of bowl judgments, they take place during the 70th week of Daniel, in particular the last three and a half years of the 70th week, as a result of Jesus Christ uh, breaking the seven sealed scroll, which is the title deed to planet earth, which he received because of his victory over Satan at the cross. And so uh, now during the church age and beginning in June of 33 AD, according to Acts chapter 2, Jewish believers in Jesus uh, were received the gift of the Spirit, in particular the baptism of the Spirit, which identified them with Jesus in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, the right hand of the Father. So that means he views them as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with his Son. Okay? The right hand of the Father. There's the beginning of the bride. Okay? Being formed. And then Acts chapter 10. Gentile believers, Cornelius' family being the first, the Roman centurion, believed in Jesus and they received the baptism of the Spirit like the Jewish believers. So now that we have Jewish and Gentile believers through the baptism of the Spirit are united to each other and now on equal footing. And right now, God is in the process of forming His bride for the, a bride for His Son, the church, where the, the church is the bride of Christ. That was a mystery not known to Old Testament saints. Ephesians 5, we'll see, talks about that. So you and I, when we come back, are going to judge angels. Paul says that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? And so when Christ comes back in the second advent to end the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, the times of the Gentiles, to defeat Antichrist and the false prophet and the tribulational armies, and that same time, what he'll do is he'll remove Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years from this earth and the curse will finally be lifted over this earth and over creation. And Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, will enter, in, will enter into their millennial reign and the elect angels uh, will be there with us and uh, to, to start the kingdom and remove Satan and the fallen angels. And uh, we also see that Old Testament saints and resurrection bodies, tribulational martyrs and resurrection bodies will join us, but they're friends of the bridegroom, Jesus, but we're the bride, the church. So God wants you to know who you are in Christ. And what a shame, what a tragedy that today in the church, this stuff is not even being taught. And uh, instead, we have the dog and pony show. We got all this other stuff that you're talking about social activism and political activism in the church. And the pastors are not spending their time talking about this, teaching the full counsel of God 
instead of riding their hobby horses or playing to the crowd uh, with uh, liberal politics or conservative politics, whatever end you're on, uh, it's just it's a tragedy, and those people are going to be held to account by Jesus. And the, this ministry, from its very inception, is here to t- preach Christ and Christ crucified. And you can look at that website, and it's evidence of that. Okay, and uh, so I want you to know that this is what God wants you to hear. He wants to know. He wants you to know who you are in Christ. He wants you to know your position in Christ. He wants you to know how he views you. He wants you to know the great future you have and the great victory you already have and that you can experience this victory over sin and Satan, this cosmic system, by simply accepting by faith, appropriating by faith, this great deliverance and consider, by considering yourself dead to the sin nature and the cosmic system of Satan and alive to God and seated at his right hand. It should transform your prayer life knowing that. And it should transform your walk with God. You are somebody one, because you are created in the image of God. Two, you are somebody because God thought you were worth it because he created you and he sent his son to the cross to die for you and suffer the wrath of God in our place, your place, my place, because he loves you and he did that when we were, we were his enemies. So that tells you we're, some, we're worth something to God. And also, he placed you in union with his son. He looks at you as he looks at his son. You're loved. So people might not, your husband might not fall out, might fall out of love you. Your wife might leave you for the milkman. You know, your parents might disown you or, you know, your your, uh, children don't see you and visit you and don't care about you or whatever. Your friends abandon you. You might be broke. You might be bankrupt. uh, You might be uh, all isolated somehow. Physical problems. But you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a child of God and you're in union with Christ, and you are can have a huge impact on your church, the church community, the people in the unregenerate and your periphery in your neighborhoods, your schools, your jobs, your businesses that you come in contact with. You can have a, an invisible impact on this country. That's right. We're the solution to the country's problems because the country's problems are directly attributed to sin, Satan, and his cosmic system. And we get the answer to that, the gospel. Because the gospel gives, which teaches about Jesus Christ and his victory over sin and Satan and his cosmic system. Therefore, the gospel is the only hope for this country and any other country in the face of the earth. So you are something because God made you somebody. And we didn't earn it or deserve it. He gets all the glory because we're saved based upon the merits of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And so this is a beautiful section of scripture and I hope it's a blessing to you as we go through it, as we're coming to the end of it, actually. So, uh, if you could look at Ephesians chapter 2, let's look at verse, we'll read the whole chapter, and then I'll read my translation of chapter 2 as I've been doing, and then we'll look at verse 19 for the rest of the class in detail, and particularly the first uh, declarative statement there, or the first uh, metaphor. So it says in Ephesians 2, 1, today I'm going to read from the Today's NIV, a great translation. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the year, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus." in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace 
expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by all by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through his, the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now we're going to read from my translation of chapter two before we look at verse 19 in detail, and just a few comments about my translation. It's more interpretive. All translations interpretive. But mine more so because I'm your interpreter. I'm your pastor. If I was on a translation committee, I wouldn't be as interpretive as I, I am. And thus, it makes my translation a little bit more wordy. Uh, but a couple of things. Uh, you'll see me uh, use the expression, each and every one of you, uh, or each and every one of us to translate the the first the second person uh, plurals of the the pronouns here or, or verbs or uh, or the uh, you know the uh, the first person plurals you know us so you'll see me say each and every one of us or each and every one of you as a corporate unit or each and every one of us as a corporate unit it, the reason why is because I look at the the first person and second person uh, pr uh, plurals in this chapter and like the first chapter as uh, not only speaking of the uh, the recipients of this letter and Paul at time when he says us, it means us being uh, me and the recipients of this letter or you just the recipients of this letter, these Gentile Christians. It's expressed. It's not only used for them and uh, to speak of them in their totality, but also it's the word, the, the plurals are used as, as uh, in a distributive sense, emphasizing no exceptions. Okay. So that's why I put that in there because when Paul says these things about the, the Gentile Christians, or the Gentile Christian community in this chapter, he means each and every person this is true of. So that's why I bring that out. The other thing is I, I interpret Paul in prepositional phrases like in Christ Jesus or in him or in himself as uh, containing the figure of metonymy. And that means the person of Christ is put for faith in him at justification and union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit. And sometimes those prepositional phrases are causal and sometimes they're expressing means. So... Just that's just a, so a heads up on when you, when you read my translations with me. So it says now, verse one, now correspondingly, even though each and every one of you is a corporate unit, we're spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions. In other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formally lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system 
and agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere, specifically the spirit who is presently working those members of the human race who are in, uh, characterized by disobedience, among whom each and every one of us also, formerly for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. Verse 4, But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of His great love with which He loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you is a corporate unit to save because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. He did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages, which is certain to come, the incomparable wealth which is the product of his grace because of kindness for the benefit of each and every one of us in the Christian community. Why? Because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It never originated from meritorious actions as a source so that a person cannot for their own benefit enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us are his creative workmanship. For each and every one of us has been created by means of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision by those who receive the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands. Each of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each of you used to be without a relationship with God and the sphere of the cosmic world system. However, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ, Jesus, each and every one of you is a corporate unit who formerly were far away, have now been brought near by means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace. Namely, by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused the hostility between the two races with each other and the two races with God. In other words, by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments, consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself and justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit. Thus, he caused peace to be established, between the two races with each other and the two races with God. Verse 16, In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross. Consequently, 
He, the Lord, put to death the hostility between the two races with each other and the two races with God. How did he do this? By means of faith in himself and justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit. Correspondingly, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely those who are far off, likewise peace to those who are near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us is a corporate unit, namely both groups are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is foreign citizens, but rather each and every one of you as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, that is members of God's household. Why? Well, because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each one of you by the apostles as well as the prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone. On the basis of its being fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union identification with him, the whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him, all of you without exception are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 in uh, in the, in the uh, in the today's NIV is, is again consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household uh, my translation of that verse again of verse 19 and I'll put it up here on my notes here uh, indeed therefore each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise that is foreign citizens but rather each and every one of you as a corporate unit our fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household. So you can see in the English, there's two. There's actually two parts to this particular verse. Verse 19 is actually composed of what we call an emphatic inferential clause. And that emphatic inferential clause in the Greek is araun, uketi, esta, zenoi, kai, paroikoi, and uh, parokoi. And that is translated by myself. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise that is foreign citizens. The Today's NIV translates this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Okay. Now, we see the second part of the verse is a strong adversative clause, which is in the Greek, Allah esta, sum, plo, sum polo, poloti, excuse me, sum politis, <laughs> tone hagion, kai, it's a tongue twister, kai, oi, kai, oi, tu theo. So it's Allah esta, Sum politai, ton hagion kai, oi kai oi, tu theu, which is translated by myself, but rather each and every one of you as a corporate unit, our fellow citizens with the saints, that is members of God's household, the today's NIV goes, they translate it, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So in Ephesians 2.19, we actually get Paul using a couple of metaphors. He uses two metaphors to describe Gentile Christians, not only in relation to the Jewish Christian community, but in relation to every believer in every Old Testament dispensation in the past, as we'll see. The first metaphor is that Gentile Christians, you and I, uh, unless you're a Jew, a Jew out there, uh, the first metaphor is that Gentile Christians are citizens in a city. And the second is that they are members of a family. He uses these two metaphors in order to emphatically emphasize that they share equal status in the kingdom of God with Jewish believers in past Old Testament dispensations 
and with those believers who lived in the dispensations before the establishment of the nation of Israel, which was through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, what I'm telling you is that Paul is stating here in this verse, in emphatic terms, to the Gentile Christian community, that they're no longer second-rate citizens. So therefore, we can see that these two metaphors present an emphatic contrast between the unregenerate state of these Gentile church-age believers and their present regenerate state as justified sinners who are in union with Jesus Christ and identified with him and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. So therefore we can see here in this verse in Ephesians 2.19 that the in the emphatic uh, inferential clause is asserting that each and every one of the recipients of this epistle who are identified in verse 11 of chapter 2 as Gentile church-age believers are no longer foreign citizens. That is foreign, uh, foreigners, and that is in other words, foreign citizens. So again, we can see that in Ephesians 2.19 that the emphatic inferential clause that begins the verse is asserting that each and every one of the recipients of this letter who Paul calls Gentile church age believers in Ephesians 2.11 are no longer foreigners. That is foreign citizens. And this is the result of an inference from the previous assertions in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 18. So you can see the today's NIV is trying to bring that out uh, in their translation by using the word consequently. And uh, and with me, uh, I translate it with an, uh, indeed therefore. Okay, It's an emphatic inferential clause, so therefore I use that expression indeed therefore. So thus, this verse presents a summarizing statement. Verse 19 is actually presenting a summarizing statement or a statement that summarizes the contents of what we just studied in detail in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. So again, Back here, the two metaphors in this verse in Ephesians 2.19 present an emphatic contrast between the unregenerate state of these Gentile church believers and their present regenerate state as justified sinners who are in union with Jesus Christ, identified with Him through the baptism of the Spirit in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. So, a couple of things. One is, uh, again, who do you define yourself as? Uh, this passage is telling us Gentile church age believers that uh, who we are in Christ. We're citizens of heaven. We're, uh, we're uh, in union with Christ. We're children of God. We're actually rules. We're going we're members of the bride of Christ, members of the body of Christ, the future bride of Christ. So we're pretty important people, not because of any great things about us. We have no merit with God, but God did this because of His grace. We didn't earn it and deserve it. It's a gift, non-meritorious blessing. Now what, what should we do with this gift? A couple of things. Give thanks and also use, remember this, what God has done for us and who he's made us to be and our position in Christ. Here's why, because it's going to affect your behavior. So when you come to sin, we come to the temptation of sin. We must ask our, or, you know, sinful thoughts, any mental, verbal, or overductive sin that we knowingly commit or tempted to do, okay, or think, all right, or say, um, we can think think about this. Is this in accordance and agreement or corresponds to who God made me to be and who I am and how, how God views me? So living a sinful lifestyle and having your priorities all askew is uh, and not in, in agreement with the will of God, which is revealed by the Spirit in the Scriptures. Uh, you're not honoring God and you're not really fulfilling the purpose for which God saved you and sanctified you, which is to do His will, to follow the example of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so uh, we should give thanks again. This should be a part of our prayer life 
in thanking, you know, uh, we did 37 hours in prayer on this ministry uh, when I was in Massachusetts between books. And, uh, you know, one of the things is we need to remember what God did for us in the past and also look what he's going to do, what he's going to do for us in the future and uh, in order to govern our behavior by those things. Because, you know, based upon what God's going to do for us in the future at the rapture, giving us a resurrection bodies and reward for faithful service, and we are faithful, and by virtue of what he has done already for us in electing and predestinating us and then what he did at our justification, how should we live? In this world, we should be practicing the command to love one another in the church. By this, all people know that we're disciples of Jesus, John 13, 34, and 35, John 15, 12, and all that involves. And then also, loving your neighbors yourself, being a royal ambassador for Christ, starts off with your actions, your godly behavior. You know, you do your job as under the Lord. You, you love your, you know, you show you, you love your wife like Christ loved the church, the wives, you obey your husbands and all things is under the Lord. Parents, you raise your children up in the ways of the Lord and you do everything as under the Lord. The children obey their parents and the Lord and everything. So all these things are testimony to who we are. We're spiritual aristocracy. You know, we're not, we're not bums. Okay. We're, we're not bums. Okay. You might've been a bum in your previous life prior to justification. In fact, we all were. We're all a bunch of bums. We're sinners. We deserve the wrath of God. We were sinners by nature and practice. And we're children of the devil. And, uh, and yet, God, look what he did for us. And then he did all these things for us. And what he's going to do for us in the future. What he's doing for us now. You know, you get the Spirit and the Son interceding in prayer for you. The Son at the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit indwelling you does as well. Romans 8, 26 and 27. You also get the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. And your union identification with Christ, which Paul, when we get to Ephesians 6, calls the full armor of God. So, uh, there's no excuse for us not to grow to spiritual maturity and become like Christ. There's no excuse for not getting a full reward. And that's the only thing you're on the face of the earth I'm afraid of, really. Is I, don't wanna, I just want to make sure I do everything he wants me to do in his life. I want to do everything that he wants me to do. Because I know at the end of the day, that's, uh, that's going to determine if I'm a success, I was a success in life and I made an impact for God. It was, was I faithful? You know, are we sinless? No, but we can be faithful. Very important. I'll give you an example. David. David committed a lot of terrible things, okay? And yet, he didn't get let that stop him, you know? He was accused of murder, adultery, yet he was a man after God's own heart. And the reason why is because he was faithful. Yes, he sinned. When he sinned, he confessed it. Uh, but his son, Solomon, uh, he, was, uh, he started off good, but he didn't end well. He died in apostasy. His love for his foreign wives was more important than his obedience to God. He was involved in syncretism. David didn't do that, okay? This is why Solomon had the kingdom taken away from his son, Rehoboam, after he died. And so, so here's what the difference between the two. They both committed terrible sins. Both, you know, one was involved in gross idolatry. The other one was adulterer and a murderer. And, uh, and look at Moses. He, he killed, a, he killed a, an Egyptian with his bare hands, and he was a believer at the time. And so he, he, he so... Moses was faithful, though. He didn't give up on God. So, you know, God knows we're not going to be sinless, okay? And, uh, and, but that doesn't justify sinning. When you sin, you confess it. But what we need to do is pick up the pieces when we fall, confess the sin, keep a short accounts with God, and keep pursuing Christ. Keep going, going forward. Don't look at, you know, you can't do anything about your sins. Confess them. That's all you can do. You can't do anything to change that. All, all God cares about with your sins is that you know that his son paid for it and you would confess it to him. 
And then he restores you to fellowship with himself and you stay in fellowship by obeying the spirit. But we got to grow to spiritual maturity. And it starts off with discipline. You know, we got to, you know, if we want to honor God and fulfill the purpose for which he made us uh, members of the body of Christ and the future bride of Christ and the future rulers of this earth, right? Is uh, we need to be disciplined every day. Sanctified time alone with God with the, in the word of God and prayer. Be a part of a church. You get up, you need a pastor. First Peter 5, 3 says, you yeah, all have a pastor. You can sit there and say no past the bill and switch the station or go click the mouse, okay? You go ahead at your own peril. But you know, First Peter 5, 3 says, every, there were people, believers were allotted to the charge of pastors. Peter says in that passage. And so, uh, you 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 know so the 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 gift of past the teacher the function of it as we see as we'll see in Ephesians four eleven through sixteen is for the so I can uh, the function of my gift enables you equips you to do serve to be a servant you you know you have a spiritual gift are you using your spiritual gift and uh, your spiritual gift can be not just uh, functioning in the full between the you know within the four walls of a church anytime you anything you do for a member of the body of Christ is uh is you know can that, that your gift can function anytime you, when you're functioning in relation to your fellow believers because the gifts of the that God gave us are for the benefit of the church Paul says first Corinthians 12 and also Romans so you're gonna be a good steward with the time that God gave you the time talent the spiritual gifts you got and other talents you might have the truth the gospel the word of God that you got the doctrines you know and uh, your treasure, your finances, how you use your finances. Are you using them for God's glory or are you using them for your own selfish purposes? Buying another Harley when you really don't need to spend $30,000 on a Harley. <laughs> I know some guys like that. You know, come on. You know, there's, you know, they're in love with the world. The things of the world, you can't take them with you. There's another, are you loving the things of the world? Where are your priorities at? You know, so you, you assemble with other members of the believers of the body of Christ. You're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves the habit of sight. You can change it now. If you want to, you want to get rid of me, you, that's fine. You go ahead and do that. But uh, this uh, this uh, recording or whatever will be a testimony. My words are a testimony to you. They serve to condemn you. If you if, So instead of walking away and still being stupid and doing the stupid things over and over again, why don't you make some changes in your life? You know? And, uh, you know, what are you doing? So if you're doing good, okay, if you're doing good and you're not condemned by anything and you're, and you're encouraged because you're doing these things I'm saying, good, good, good. Don't don't be resting on your laurels. You got to finish the race. King Solomon would have told you that. You need to finish the race like Moses and David did and, Dan, and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Jeremiah, the great saints of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also in the, in the New Testament with the apostles and Peter and Paul and James and John, you know, Timothy, Epaphroditus, people like that, Titus, uh, men and women of God, Ruth, Esther, who uh, finished the race, you know, until, until the rapture happens or our death, whichever comes first, the race is still going for us. If we're still breathing here, okay? So we need to persevere and keep going and not settle for mediocrity. We want to, we want to live a life that's honoring to God and that can only be done through obedience to his word. So therefore, we again, we can see and Ephesians 2.19, the, the emphatic inferential clause uh, that starts this verse is asserting that each and every one of the recipients of this letter who are identified in Ephesians 2.11 as Gentile church-age believers are no longer foreigners, that is, foreign citizens. It is the result of an inference from the previous assertions in Ephesians 2.11-18, as we pointed out. So thus, Ephesians 2.19 is summarizing the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses 11 through 18. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, we had the word xenos, foreigners, and we have it again here in this emphatic inferential clause in Ephesians 2, 19. Uh, today's NIV uh, has the word foreigners there, okay? So that word for foreigners, xenos, it's uh, used to describe, as it did in Ephesians 2, 12. It's used to describe Gentile Christians as being strangers to the Mosaic Covenant, as well as the four unconditional covenants of promise, which were given by God to his covenant people, Israel. And this is what he describes them in verse 12. Remember, what did he say in verse 12 about them? He says, remember that at that time, prior to your conversion, you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So, we see that the word foreign is there, in this emphatic and inferential clause in verse 19, as was the case in Ephesians 2.12 when it was used, is used to describe the recipients of this letter who were Gentile Christians in the Roman province of Asia. And it describes them prior to their justification as being strangers to the Mosaic Covenant as well as the four unconditional covenants of promise which were given by God to His covenant people Israel. What were those four unconditional covenants? Well, it was the Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants. Now, the Palestinian, they could probably translate it, land, uh, um, describe it as uh, the land grant. And it's part of the Abrahamic Covenant, actually those who studied Genesis with me. But those are the unconditional covenants that God made with Israel. They're unconditional, unlike the Mosaic Covenant, uh, because uncon uh, the unconditional covenants mean that uh, the fulfillment of these covenants are not dependent upon the faithfulness of God, the Old Testament saints. Uh, they're based upon the faithfulness of God. Whereas the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant can only flow to the Israelites if they were obedient to God. Now, David McLeod, who was a uh, professor up in... Um, What's that uh, place uh, up in uh, uh, Dubuque, uh, Iowa, and Emmaus Bible College, okay? Great, great uh, man of God, writer, and uh, he's written books, and he's written journal articles, and he teaches up there at Dubuque, uh, Iowa, at, I still think he does, at uh, Emmaus Bible College, and I've always wanted to take a class with him. I've seen him online teach there, but David McLeod makes the following quote, uh, quote re regards to this word strangers. Uh, he says, Zenoi means foreigners. And he says, such people were visitors in a Greek city like Ephesus. They were there on sufferance, that is, by the permission of the citizens of the city. Strangers were viewed as different, hard to fathom, unsettling, sinister. To the stranger, the new environment was disturbing and threatening. There was mutual fear and distrust. And the lot of the stranger, or the, and the foreigner in this context, in a Greek city was not an easy one. One wrote home, it is better for you to be in your own homes, whatever they may be like than to be in a strange land. So he's giving, what he's doing is he's giving us some insight into this world. So if we make application, the Gentiles were very, they were on, they were on the, you know, God had his people in a covenant relationship with the Israelites, the Jews. The Gentiles were on the outskirts. And when they went into the midst of a, an Israelite people, they were treated as strangers and, and foreigners. And there was a lot of mistrust. So that has been wiped for the church between the relationship between Jew and Gentile believers and, and these two with God has been wiped out through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the word for foreign citizens, it's the word parakois, paroikos, excuse me, parakois, parakoi, paroikos, paroikos, okay, I got to pronounce that right, okay? And this word means foreign citizens. It pertains... It pertains to someone 
who lives in a particular nation in which they're without the right of citizenship. Specifically, here in Ephesians 2.19, this word, paroikos, describes the members of the Gentile Christian community as no longer being foreign citizens. Now, the word, the adjective xenos, foreigners, describes a person who is a foreigner, land, foreigner in a land which is given traveling rights throughout the country, whereas the word paroikos, uh, it, foreign citizens, it describes a person who is le- illegally a resident alien and possesses a residence visa. Uh, again, McLeod gives us some insight into this word. He says that it actually speaks of resident aliens. Such a person has taken up residence in the city, but has had never become a naturalized citizen. He paid a tax for the privilege of living in a city that was not his own. He could be legally evicted on a moment's notice. However, as in the case of the outbreak of war, and uh, in short, he says, the status of an alien was always provisional. And in 1955, he says, his, uh, his parents, uh, McLeod's parents, moved their family of three sons, and he was one of them, from Nova Scotia, uh, Canada, to the Massachusetts and the United States, which is kind of interesting. My, my father's mother was French-Canadian, by the way. And she lived up in, uh, she came from the Montreal area. So it's quite interesting. And they moved to Massachusetts. And so he goes on to say, for a number of years, we were resident aliens with an alien registration card. In fact, one of the older boys in the neighborhood felt he could push the new boys around because they were foreigners. On December 7th, 1961, that's about a little over a couple of weeks after I was born. He says on December 7th, 1961, however, the McLeod family became naturalized citizens. They became fellow citizens with all other Americans. Even then, however, they were denied one or two privileges possessed only by natural born citizens. For example, the writer does not have the privilege of running for the office of President of the United States, end of quote. So he's given us some insight into this word. So when you look at this passage in Ephesians 2.19, it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household. So uh, he again, Paul's emphasizing to the, the, the re, his readers, the Gentile Christian community in the Roman province of Asia, and us Gentiles today in the church, that where we used to be, we're not in an enviable position, okay? Uh, Jewish believers, okay, were in a much better position than us Gentile uh, believers. Uh, in fact, the Jews themselves were in a much better position because they, they received all these privileges from God. Romans 9, 4, through 4 and 5 talks about them. You know, the, 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 the patriarchs were the, the progenitors of the nation. They received the tabernacle worship, the scriptures, Romans 3. Uh, it's a Jewish book. And, uh, but Gentiles, where were we? <laughs> you know, I mean, you could be a proselyte, a believer in Yahweh in the Old Testament, like Rahab and other Gentiles and, uh, and Ruth. Uh, but, um, you know, in general, you know, the Gentiles were in pretty rough shape. So it's just amazing what God has done and what he's done for us and, uh, and, and, uh, and, cha- and changing this, our status simply because of our faith in Jesus at justification. And then when he raised us up and seated us with his son, Jesus Christ, through the baptism of the Spirit at our justification, that was the, uh, you know, now we're on equal footing. We're united with Christ, but also we're on equal footing with these Jewish believers. And as we, Paul says in Romans 3, 1 through 13, uh, again, a passage I'm almost finishing, I'm going to be finishing off in the next couple of days, uh, Gentile believers, church-age believers, are co-heirs, co-members of the body of Christ and fellow partakers of the Messianic promise with Jewish believers. That was not known to Old Testament saints. Look at that real quickly. We're going to wrap it up here. Look at Romans 3.1. Excuse me, Ephesians 3.1. 
Paul says, for this reason, I'm reading for the, today's NIV. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. And reading this, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed during the church age by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, that's born-again Israel, the remnant of Israel, members together of one body, the body of Christ, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone in the church the administration of this ministry, mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, during the church, through the church, the members of the church, you and I, the multifaceted or manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's Satan's kingdom he's talking about there. And this is according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And he says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. And uh, they make possible, in other words, he's saying, we get to it, it makes possible of them to receive honor and glory from the Lord Jesus Christ at the at the uh, the rapture of the resurrection church and the Bama seat evaluation of the church when they if they get rewards and also um, honor during the millennial reign of Christ because the church age believer the Gentile church age believer is a member of the body of Christ and the future part of the, the bride of Christ as Jewish believers are as well so look at God did for us the grace we didn't earn it to deserve it and uh, and so this is God in his love did this. It pleased him to do this. So let's respond in obedience, faith and obedience and perseverance and uh, in do, being good stewards with the time, talent and treasure and truth that God gave us. You know, being a good uh, husband, loving your wife like Christ loved the church, wise, being uh, loving your husband, obeying your husband in all things is under the Lord. Parents raising your kids up in the ways of the Lord. Uh, children obey your parents in all things is under the Lord. Do all of us do everything that we do to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Love your neighbors yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor yourself. Love members of the body of Christ and all that involves John 13, 34, and 35 and John 15, 12. And we'll maintain that unity in the Christian community, our churches, and with the Jewish wing of the church. And But we also will bring glory to God and we're living in a manner that's consistent with who God made us to be at our justification and how we're going to be in a future, in the resurrection body, and rewards uh, when we go into the millennial reign with Christ and also the new heavens and the new earth. So thank you for joining me. Let's We'll pick this up on Thursday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Lord willing, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray this lesson. It would be a great blessing to you people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.